What's happening, everyone? Jose Nino here with another thought-provoking episode of El Nino Speaks. For today's segment, I've brought on the esteemed Dr. Paul Gottfried. He is the author of seminal texts such as After Liberalism, Multiculturalism and the Politics of Guilt, Fascism, the Career of a Concept, and Anti-Fascism, the Course of a Crusade, among other works. Currently, he is the editor-in-chief of Chronicles Magazine and one of the hosts of the Cotto Gottfried podcast. How are you today, Paul? I am fine. Well, it's great to have you on. So, yeah, I've um, followed your work for some time, and I've religiously followed the Cotto Gottfried show, which I thoroughly enjoy, especially the guests you have on and the numerous conversations you guys have on politics. Now, you've studied the conservative movement at length during your multiple decades of writing on all sorts of topics, whether it's from like history to contemporary politics. And you even authored another book, Leo Strauss and the American Conservative Movement. What has been your general impression about the American conservative movement from the 1950s up until the present? Yeah, it's undergone change, but at the same time shows certain constant features. The most obvious of which I think is the tendency to expel people who do not fit whatever the agenda of the movement is at a particular time. I've been expelled more than once. In fact, I've spent most of my uh, my adult life would be expelled by the conservative movement and being treated as a non-person. But this is exactly the way it operates. Another characteristic of the movement is it always moves to the left, except on certain foreign policy questions. For instance, uh, it's always in favor of war and defense industries and always claims to be fighting for human rights and democracy against the enemy of the moment. The other characteristic, there is actually another characteristic, it generally, you know, takes money from certain corporations and defends their interest. Mm. So you would say that the American conservative movement in many ways is like a controlled opposition to the left, if you will? Yeah, it's a, when I say it's a bogus opposition, because it doesn't really do very much. And the left always wins it in the end, but the conservative movement stays on you know, as a placeholder, it is sort of occupying the role of an official opposition that really doesn't do anything very effective and gradually absorbs most of the position of those it claims to be opposing. Hmm. Who would you say are among the most prominent figures that Conservatism Inc., the acceptable right and other permutations of the modern conservative movement have expelled from its ranks that come to mind? Yeah. Well, the most acceptable are the people you see on Fox News, obviously, right? Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, then Ben Shapiro has a, uh, you know, a podcast that does very well. Mark Levin. Most of these people I see, I see every night on Fox, like uh, Dana Perino obviously fits into the club, Geraldo Rivera, Greg Gutfeld. These are really not intellectual heavy hitters. They're basically for television entertainment, but they also represent, you know, a point of view, which is point of view of the official opposition, which is embodied 
more or less by the Republican Party, which is the official opposition party. So which figures on the so-called dissident right, old right, or paleoconservative right have been victims of these cancellation campaigns of like the past like 40 years or so? Well, I mean, there's varying degrees of marginalization or uh, cancellation, whatever term you're going to use. I mean, I suppose I I am one of the the most canceled. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Probably Sam Francis would fit that category. Pat Buchanan is hardly ever allowed on any kind of television Mm -hmm. program, although he was the conservative candidate for president twice and was probably the most widely read conservative journalist in the United States for decades. He was simply perceived as being too far on the right and too anti-war. The anti-war position is very much characteristic of the traditional right, whether we're looking at paleo-libertarians or paleo-conservatives. The agitation to go to war against Putin seems to be coming from the usual sources, which would be the neoconservatives and the liberals. You know, I mean, they, uh, whatever difference exists among them, I think they're united, certainly by their war policies. But, you know, they're, someone like Michelle Malkin used to be extremely, she's on television all the time on Fox News. She's not there anymore because she obviously said something that they didn't like or which, you know, sounded too conservative. So she had to be removed. The other side of it is that nobody really gets kicked out for being too far to the left. Unless you take certain positions they don't like, if you're very obsessively anti-Israel, they might kick you out. You could be, you know, a liberal Democrat. It could be like David French, uh, Jonah Goldberg, uh, a lot of people who have, you know, moved pretty far to the left or sound very much even on critical race theory in the case of French. But it's only, only if he asks to leave the movement, will he leave it? Whereas anybody who deviates to the right gets kicked out, unless that person has a lot of influence. And there are some who can actually afford deviations because they have friends in high place and are influential figures in the movement, which I never was, by the way. (laughs) By the way, I'm, I'm also probably the most prolific writer on the face of the earth on the American conservative movement. My books are never discussed. They're never reviewed in the Wall Street Journal, National Review. I am totally isolated. I was canceled back in the 1980s, and you know, I was never rehabilitated or taken back into the movement. So this conversation has had me thinking about like some other figures. Do you think that people like the late Joseph Sobrin or Peter Brimelow or John Derbyshire are also other examples of people on the right that have been marginalized by a lot of these gatekeepers? Oh, absolutely. Even Steve Saylor, who writes for VDARE, I think has been pretty much marginalized. One of the mistaken impressions among those who sort of look at, particularly on the left, these people have been marginalized, they must be neo-Nazis and anti-Semites. That's not true. As I've argued in my books on the conservative movement, people that kicked out of the conservative movement in many cases, were Jewish. You know, they just, they were sort of ornery and then towed the party line, like Murray Rothbard. But, but there yeah. were many people like that who got kicked out. Joseph Brand was like obsessively anti-Israel. And, you know, maybe certainly after he got kicked around, didn't like Jews very much. I'm not sure he started out that way. Peter Brimlow seems to draw a lot of fire, much of which I don't even understand. I mean, I, he's... Uh, 
you say, well, he's very edgy, but you know, he really is not. I mean, he's a critic of immigration. He will sometimes publish people who make genetic distinctions between races or something like that. But that, I think, is not something commonly done by him. Darbyshire will write about racial differences, but one could hardly say that he's, you know, a, a nasty racialist or anything. He's sort of a scientific geneticist type who treats everybody quite respectfully and is actually one of the most brilliant figures. He's a mathematician. He's a brilliant writer. But he was kicked out of National Review for saying something that I thought was entirely trite, that, you know, if his kids were in a car and they passed by and there were some blacks who asked him to help with a car and these people, these blacks look dangerous or something like that. He told his kids just to, you know, he would have told his kids just to drive by. I can't imagine that Rich Lowry, who threw him out of National Review, would have done anything else. (laughs) What you have are simply these uh, fake conservatives who engage in fake virtue signaling, which after a while becomes very tiresome. But I would argue that actually the best minds, the best writers of the conservative movement have been kicked out. It's sort of like what the communists did. If I may make that comparison, because I have more respect for the communists than for the conservative movement. But uh, <laughs> honestly, I do. But I mean, many yeah. of the, no, I many, do as well. Yeah, many of the people got kicked out with, <laughs> with the best minds, the most critical minds. It was only the people who would follow blindly you know, who in the end of the day were, you know, sort of acceptable or people who would make no waves. And there are some bright people. There there are also people who sometimes say things like Christopher Caldwell that are very politically incorrect, but survive because they're writing for the Weekly Standard, have good connections in the conservative movement, and people will excuse their indiscretions. I mean, I think there there are other people I know who write on very, very touchy questions, but have so much influence that, you know, they can survive. I actually think this is a great segue because you mentioned the communist part because you've also written a lot about the Western left, most notably in your book, The Strange Death of Marxism, which I highly recommend my listeners to Mm -hmm. get a copy of. And I would just say it's very provocatively titled, to say the least, because you do see a lot of people on the right that I think are still stuck in a geopolitical mm-hmm. and like 20th century, like time warp when they analyze politics. You argue based on your analysis that the left has transformed in certain regards over the past century. In what ways would you say that the present day left differs from its older predecessors? I don't see much connection. <laughs> I don't, when I listen to a joker like Mark Levin saying American, he's not talking about Marxism in, in the end. He's talking about wokeism, which has very little to do with Marxism. I think the woke left is very, very pro capitalist, but crony capitalist. I mean, it would not fit Murray Rothbard's definition of capitalism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're very much into crony capitalism, they're corporate globalist types, and they pay for people with strange sex habits, people who hate the white race and so forth. This has nothing to do with classical Marxism. Now, I do recognize that wokeism or LGBT, whatever you call it, and Marxism are both subspecies of the left in that they both, you know, imagine a a sort of a globalist society in which everybody is equal, you know, in which there's going to be no distinctions. And I I think at the end of the day, they both favor some kind of economic collectivism. I, 
I don't think that the capitalists who are supporting the woke movement are free enterprise types by any, <laughs> you know, their, their economics are more like those of, of you know, the Nazi economists. It's, you know, they just want state support for their efforts and they want to eliminate their competitors. They call upon people using political force to help them. They also are very, very anti-nationalist. They're against, against nation states because they're globalist. Mm-hmm. And they typically favor open borders, letting everybody come in because it increases the supply of cheap labor. Yeah, there is a clear difference between the modern day left and like the old left of the 20th century, because like the modern day left is much more into a lot of this like racial essentialism and also mm-hmm. like promoting sexual deviancy. Whereas I think that the old left was much more class reductionist. That said, I do think that there is kind of like an overall theme that links a lot of like the left in general, like in all its permutations and how they're always trying to like socially re-engineer like traditional hierarchies and all Mm -hmm. that, those type of relationships. But I think that this modern day iteration is much more focused on stuff that most Marxists would see as like pretty big deviations or like almost like distractions. If you talk to, I've talked to like a lot of like older Marxist professors who say like, they think that like a lot of these fights that the modern day left delves into are kind of like unproductive and all that. But the left from its like original form has always been kind of like about restructuring social relations. It's just that they may defer in terms of like certain strategies and whatnot. But I think that it would behoove the right to kind of recognize these nuances whenever they're in the political arena, because you have to like know your enemy inside and out. Now, I think like it's pretty safe to say that there is like a pervasive, like multicultural ethos that has taken place throughout the entire West. And you can see it from like North America all the way to like, say, Germany. Now, you have seen like the right pull off some electoral victories here and there against these multicultural leftist entities, most notable being like the election of Donald Trump in 2016. What would you say were the primary catalysts behind the Trump victory of 2016 and other populist insurgencies that you see across continental Europe? Yeah, first of all, I I would point out, as I do in my book on on anti-fascism, that these populist movements are in a disadvantageous position because they are being violently opposed by the media, the academic class, and by the capitalists, these global capitalists, who uh, want to destroy them entirely. And the anti-populist side can usually get majority elections and, and freeze out populist parties not allow them into coalitions, treat them as the Germans treat the Alternative for Deutschland as a, you know, a neo-Nazi party, oh, yeah. not, or the Flamsbelang or the uh, Rassemblement National in France. But they're all treated the same way. They're like neo-Nazis and everyone in the establishment attacks them. And you find somebody who was in Auschwitz who says, this is exactly like the Nazis. And of course, that person is delusional because they're not. But, you know, you're always able to um, marginalize them or put them in the corner. The Trump victory is the exception. Although once Trump got into office, you know, he was pretty much of a Republican he took power 
with a populist coalition and he would always sort of go back to his base. But Trump was basically destroyed by the establishment, by the deep state, right, by the media. They went after him and they're still going after him to make sure he never comes back again. And, you know, if God forbid a Republican wins, there'll be someone like Lisa Cheney or Liz Cheney or or somebody like that. So the populists have have a real problem. Also, once, I mean, once Trump won, I mean, he he put neoconservatives like uh, Bolton in charge of things and so forth. So we cannot speak of this as an unadulterated victory. It was certainly not that. The fact that he won in what was really a disputed election in which, you know, he won the electoral vote but lost the popular vote, as far as we can tell, may be the closest that, you know, a populist can come. Now, someone like Eric Zemmour in France is able to come close to winning. (laughs) That would be a great victory because he's a conservative nationalist populist. But, you know, in Germany, there is no opposition to the left. Everything that's in power is, is the left except for the Freie Demokraten, who are absolutely nothing. I mean, they're sort of like liberal Republicans by Americans. And they're just, you know, they're just marginal to the ruling coalition right now. So I I don't think the populists have a very strong hand, although, you know, I'm in their corner. I just don't see them uh, having the numbers or the influence to win and take over countries. Also, obviously, the more you allow third world populations to settle in your country, the less likely it is that anyone who appeals to national identity is going to win in any race. And this is exactly what the Democrats understand in America. That's why they mm-hmm. everybody come in, you know, uh, including uh, Muslim terrorists, anyone you can just come in, you know, because they want them to vote and they want to make sure that anybody with a national identity of any kind in this country is, is not going to win or will not have very much political influence. And the Democrats are behaving very much the way European parties of the center or center left do. Yeah, populism is weird because, well, at least like the nationalist iteration of populism is kind of bizarre because I've always gotten the impression that American nationalism in particular is a tad artificial given how historically Nationalism has somewhat coincided with the growth of the administrative state, and Uh it's been used to justify foreign policy boondoggles abroad, at least in the U.S. context. I think in Europe, it's different because I I do think the European national populism, whether it's like, say, like France, all the way to like Hungary, there is like an organic like nation state context to it. But when you look at the U.S., it is a bit more artificial that said, I get the impression that the Trumpist movement is more genuine because of how it, it like focuses against like a parasitic ruling class that benefits from never-ending wars, mass migration, and like the promotion of anti-white policies. Not to mention like these sexually deviant lifestyles that this ruling class promotes. So I do think like the Trump movement it has that clear friend-enemy distinction in mind. However, I still have my doubts about its viability because there's always these people in the background, like the neocons and adjacent figures that are always trying to subvert insurgent conservative movements. So do you fear that the populist movement could be co-opted in the near future by nefarious actors in conservatism, Inc., or similar forces? 
Yeah, I, I, by the way, I share all the views you've just expressed. I've always, I think the, the problem with American nationalism, it is not like Europeanism, which is based on ethnicity, history, culture, shared culture for hundreds of years, uh, at least for most of these people. You know, American nationalism is not like Estonian or Latvian nationalism, which I understand as traditional nationalism. So uh, what you have to do is you have to say, well, it's civic nationalism. We, you know, we're citizens of this country and we owe them loyalty or something like that. But the bonds seem to be a lot weaker and sort of easily manipulated depending on your agenda. And I think much of the sense of nationalism, and here I follow the late Robert Nisbet, you know, is based on creating this vast centralized state, you know, and nationalism means the appeal to the people above the states, you know, giving them a kind of national identity with Washington, essentially. But then you get the word nationalism that is used in different ways. I mean, for instance, um, most of the isolationists in America who oppose, you know, foreign wars and so forth, describe themselves as nationalists. The American First Movement, you know, said that what they did is they, you know, they, they, they favored preserving America really from involvement in European wars. So they're using nationalism in that sense. I find when I, you know, whenever I talk to people who identify with what was the old right in America, the 1930s, the anti-New Deal, anti-war right, they're using nationalism in a very specific sense. You know, um, and it refers to certain policies that they favor. And I find the same thing is true with some of my allies now who say they're American nationalists. But if you ask me, what does nationalism mean? You know, I generally agree with them. <laughs> I wouldn't call myself an American nationalist, you know, the way uh, a Frenchman might be a French nationalist or the Germans, if they weren't brain dead, would say they're German nationalists, <laughs> right? So a Polish nationalist, because, you know, we're not talking anymore about an historic nation that, you know, has deep ethnic cultural roots and so forth, which really doesn't describe the American situation, certainly not in, in this age. But, you know, if you say that they're in favor of the working class against the corporate capitalist elite, you know, which hates this country, which hates Western civilization, which wants open borders, which wants to push LGBT agenda, which is anti-white. Yes, I mean, I side with their enemies because I think these people are thoroughly evil. If you uh, say, you know, you want to stay out of foreign wars, yes, I do. Well, that makes you a national. I suppose I'm a nationalist in that sense. But again, in, in, the, in the Americans' case, we're using it in, in different but very specific senses that are different from the way Europeans see it. I do agree that it's hard to grab hold of the nationalist label when there are neoconservatives and neoliberals who have a hell of a lot more influence than the traditional right, you know, in making use of that label. and the neoconservatives were always claiming to be American nationalists, right? A new nationalism. We have to impose our values on the whole world, which, you know, values which would have shocked Americans a hundred years ago, but yeah. basically <laughs> yeah. imposed it. So, uh, you know, they have their own definition of nationalism and they have a much louder megaphone than we do. So, you know, they're the ones who may be able to define the term for the rest of us. Yeah, that actually reminds me of a piece you wrote some time ago, I think it's for American Thinker, the American conservative, where you pointed out that John Judas was kind of calling for this like form of liberal nationalism as a response to the surging Trump nationalism. And it's actually kind of funny because I've 
I'm hearing these calls get even stronger now. Like you'll go on like the Financial Times and you'll read these think pieces by these pundits where they're saying like a conflict with China or Russia or both at the same time could be used to like spark like some degree of unity in the US and create like a new nationalism. Do you think that these people would like be like that crazy to pursue that as a way to like stitch things back together in the US? Yeah, I mean, I think this is true. The left and the neoconservatives who I consider to be simply part of the left, you know, under different name, what they do is present themselves as a true American nationalist. But then they go and they define nationalism you know, uh, almost like the Bolsheviks would have defined Russian nationalism. They have their own peculiar definitions. It's like standing up for human rights or something like that, or, you know, a universal nation that believes in universal rights. Well, that's not exactly what I think of <laughs> about nationalism, but uh, that's the way they define it. On the other hand, I, I think they do have a problem because the United States is not like Poland or Estonia or these other countries <laughs> that, you know, fit traditional nationalist definitions or concepts. We're not like that. We haven't been that like that for a while. <laughs> so uh, you're going to have to come up, if you want to use the word nationalism, you're going to have to make it refer to something else, like having a large centralized state and standing for universal rights or something like that. And I think that's the way they understand American nationalism. The other thing I find remarkable is that they're always telling you America is unique. America is superior. Unless you, you, you believe, you know, an American superiority, you're evil, you're on the radical left or something. I cannot imagine Estonians or Latvians or anybody else. We are superior to, or the Germans, you know, you say, well, they're Nazis if they do that. Why, you know, why does my respect for my country require me to say we're better than everybody else? You know, and everybody else is inferior to us. They can't say it in a racial sense, but apparently they're not, nobody else is as enlightened as we are. We're the most enlightened people. Though they haven't convinced me this is true. I've, I've never believed this in my life, but, you know, <laughs> but I do understand their, their problem in trying to come up with a usable definition of nationalism. Yeah, it's definitely a problem when you think about it in like the U.S., which I think is like thoroughly post-national now in the sense that when you look at just like demographics and the overall ethos, like when you have like basically the supposed right-wing movement where the common trope is that America is an idea, that just makes it seem like nationalism is just like a black box where you impute whatever like philosophical projections you have on what like America is. And like nationalism could be for like some people, like the promotion of LGBT rights abroad. And then for others is like, tax cuts for like mega corporations that ironically hate this country. But yeah, it's a weird movement. Now, I want to like kind of like shift gears like more like domestically to US politics and what like the future of American politics will look like in the next few decades. I'm of like the belief that the Republican Party is like Donald Trump's party until further notice. But you've got some people always talking about like Trumpism after Trump. And I have some misgivings about those type of perspectives because until like Trump totally bows out of politics, I think he's going to have an outsized role in shaping GOP politics, whether we like it or not. Regardless, who do you think is the most credible successor to Trump 
Yeah, I think the most credible successor and the one who impresses me the most is, aside from Rand Paul, who I think is an extremely intelligent man who might be happy to vote for, for president, but he's never going to get that far. Mm-hmm. But aside from Rand Paul, I think it would be uh, Ron DeSantis. I do not think it's Ted Cruz, because I think <laughs> the city hound, a horrible personality. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, Hawley seems to be almost, uh, whom I actually respected for a while, seems to be almost a uh, uh, subordinate of, of Cruz, you know, who tries to sound like him and take some of the same positions and sign the same petitions. But DeSantis strikes me as somebody who's very much of his own man, who is extremely articulate and is willing to defy the media, but does so uh, in a much more deliberate and intelligent fashion than Trump. I mean, Trump really is the classical bull in the China shop. You know, he strikes at it. Anybody who insults him personally, he will strike out at. And it's always about himself. I don't know. DeSantis is obviously ambitious, but he makes it appear that he's you know, doing this for the American people, restoring their freedom, their traditional rights, and so forth. The problem is, as I argue in a piece that I wrote for American Greatness a few days ago, it seems to be doing well, is that any Republican who runs against the Democrats will be bloodied by the media. They will become Donald Trump in five seconds, right? I mean, they, they, they absolutely eviscerated Mitt Romney, they went after George Bush. They went after all these people, right? They went after McCain, as timid a candidate as he was <laughs> against them. Yeah. But they're going to they're go after you anyhow, and you have to come firing back at them. The problem is that Trump does not do it in an intelligent manner. And his, his egotism is very obvious. It's like, you've hurt my feelings, you know? How dare you say this? And then he fights with everybody, with... Uh, rock stars, uh, actor, I mean, any, anyone who insults him, you know, he, he goes on, on TV and a news guy and started attacking them, which I suppose may endear him to some of his followers. But I think it shows a character weakness, which is very dangerous in a political leader. And I really don't have any, con- well, I don't have much confidence. He, he was a decent enough president compared to the idiot who succeeded him. <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, but anybody looks good in comparison to Biden or Kamala. But um, he has a personality problem that that leaves me very uncomfortable. The problem with DeSantis, I don't think, has anything like, you know, Trump's following. I mean, Trump has like over 40 percent of the population who are going to vote for him. The problem is the rest of the people are, you know, are going to be the, the, the people on the other side absolutely hate him. He's profoundly divisive, much of which, of course, has to do with the media war against him, the media and the deep state war. But much of it also has to do with his personality and his difficulty in controlling his passions and the verbal effusions that we've come to associate with him. Yeah, Trump is an interesting figure in how he does hit like certain polarization buttons that no politician right now really can do. And he attracts very, very passionate supporters. Even DeSantis, who has smartly used the COVID-19 lockdowns as a way to like position himself mm-hmm. as a upcoming leader. He just doesn't really trigger that type of like animalistic tribal response the way Trump does. But yet one problem I see with the Trump movement in general 
is that there really aren't that many like populist institutions that are good at placing staff or other professionals in the bureaucracy so that they can actually like keep their power and also elect people that let's say are like to the right of Trump on certain populist issues, like consistently, like in both chambers of Congress. Cause I come from a lobbying background and like kind of like legislative background. So I look at things from like a roll call vote perspective, like how many people do you know you'll have on your side? Cause when you look at like the way Congress is made up now, you can maybe find a few here and there, like in the house, that are pretty solid. But when you go to like the Senate, it's like really difficult to find people like that. And neocons, despite them taking a body blow in 2016, they can still get people elected and people installed in the bureaucracy where they can basically undermine uh, insurgent candidate like Trump should they get into power. And that's kind of like where I see a lot of the struggle populists will have. There's going to be a lot of factional infighting in the next decade or so, in my view, when I look at things from afar. No, I, I think you're right. The neocons do not like Trump, even though many of them went to work for him. But I think part of it is they want their own people in there. They'd be very happy that Nikki Haley was probably their number one choice. They could certainly live with Marco Rubio. They are not a problem for the, uh, the deep state. Since, you know, they simply cooperate. They're not, mm. as, long, as long as their specific demands get met, they're not going to be fighting with the deep state. They'll try to cut some deal with the media, get along with the media and so forth. They don't much care about these social issues. You know, if, if the left wants uh, transgender medicine given to kids, they're not going to yell too loudly about that. But, you know, if you cut off aid to Israel, they'll be very upset. Oh, yeah, they will do backflips and all sorts of other acrobatics yeah. to make sure that does not happen. Okay, yeah, to like wrap things up a bit because there's um a lot of ink being spilled these days all about like the future of America. And I think I've gathered the impression that most people across the political spectrum think the future is quite bleak, be it in a way that conforms with their ideological biases. Now, you've been on this rock for a while, so you definitely have a before and after perspective on the direction the country is going. What do you think America's future looks like? Is it going to be very unstable or just more of the same? I think it's going to be unstable, more of the same, unstable and more of the same. What makes the United States different from a country like Germany, which I think is sort of the old, or Canada, which are sort of the ultimate embodiments of political correctness and left-wing authoritarian government with, you know, very accommodating populations. What makes us different is that we have, you know, at least 40% of the population who are going to strike back against the leftist state. Much of this woke disease comes from the United States and goes back, I think, you know, even to the re-education of Germany after the Second World War, I argue. You know, the anti-fascism, the global democracy stuff and so forth. And then the civil rights crusade in the United States becomes almost a template, right, for later crusades for gays or transgender or whatever. And you already have a government bureaucracy in place to deal with discrimination and to punish people who don't go along with the programs and so forth. The Europeans take this over. I think it was largely from us. 
I think Europe is pretty much, you know, of a uh, part, sort of a satellite of the American empire. Western, Eastern Europe is different. You know, and Canada certainly is. The entire Anglophone world or Anglosphere, they sort of take over, you know, they take their leads culturally, politically, and morally from us, as far as I can see. And this is what I argue in my book, uh, Strange Death of European Marxism. But I think what makes us different is we have a very large opposition. <laughs> you know, we both poison the, the, the rest of the Western world, but we, but we also are the center of the opposition to this. And whether it's Trump or somebody else who comes along, the, there will be people resisting the left. And the more they do things like, you know, build up January 6th, which may well have been, you know, start, uh, planned by the FBI together with the, with the Democratic National Party, the more they play up this kind of thing, the more they try to imprison people, go, the, the more they cheat in elections or try to cheat, the more violent the reaction is going to be in this country. And I think that the left simply wants to go for broke. And they have too much opposition to be able to prevail in the way they have in Canada or Germany or some other countries. So th this is going to go on and on. I, I expect the cultural conflicts to both continue and to deepen. I see no end in sight to that. I also see the deep state having the secret service, the media, electronic uh, media, all these things on its side, but still facing opposition. And this is going to continue. And, you know, the left may be able to pull out victories. The right, as represented by the Republican Party, really isn't very much at all. It's not a very good opposition. But what you have is the sort of solid populist mass, what Hillary Clinton called the basket of deplorables. And it's a very big basket. I mean, I live among these people. They absolutely hate the government. They loathe the government. And, you know, they're not going to give up their opposition. So I think this is what, uh, I think this, by the way, I think this is what's admirable about the United States. <laughs> the deplorables are the, are, are the yes. best country. <laughs> yeah, I've uh, argued that the kind of like Appalachian, Scotch-Irish base is a unique subsect of like, the American populace that's mm -hmm. going to always be very resistant to the managerial state. And as long as that populace is not like fully displaced the left is going to get a, like a lot of headaches. A lot of this like white working class base, if it's like activated properly, could be a force of restraint and also potentially a force of like reconquest of territory that we have lost in the U.S. And that's one of like the few glimmers of hope that I have with regards to the populism is this white working class base. Yeah, I would I would also add that the white leftist elites, which claim to hate white people. They want to exterminate all the white people. I mean, listen to these idiot professors saying these, these things. And the people who give them money you know, behind this and the, uh, the district attorneys who you know, let, let murderers out on the street and so forth. All of this, is, I, in my opinion, is being directed against the deplorables, against the white working class, whom these leftists, mostly white leftists, despise. They want to destroy them. They use blacks to incite blacks against them. Anybody else they can incite against them. So I, I think I think this is really what the struggle comes down to. With all due respect to these white nationalists, I really don't think blacks count for very much in this. I think I think the leadership of the left is white. 
you know, and they're fighting a war to destroy other white people. And they bring in anyone they can, Muslims in Europe, blacks in the United States and so forth. So uh, what, we, what we see is a class war. That's what it is. It's a class war among white people in which the, uh, you know, the working class is holding out in its own way, because I don't think it's always conscious of this, is holding out for traditional values or traditional ways of life. They almost behave in a market. It's almost Marxist. Like, it's not that these people are aware that they're fighting for civilization, but at the end of the day, they are. Even if they have very little awareness of this, because they're trying to hold at bay people who are trying to destroy our civilization. All fascinating insights, Paul. It was an absolute pleasure having this conversation with you. And I'm sure that my listeners will find your insights thoroughly captivating as always. Now, where can my listeners find your work and stay up to date on the latest news for Chronicles magazine? Well, you can can look up at Chronicles. We'll gladly take your subscriptions if you want to subscribe. Uh, We also have a website where you can read, you know, some of our articles and also subscribe. And all my books are sold by Amazon. If you want Amazon, uh, there's about 15 of my books there. Again, Paul, thank you for coming on. Now, Mm -hmm. to all my listeners, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time out of your day to tune in to El Nino Speaks. And with that, El Nino has spoken.